all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I say no contract, you say no code. No contract, no If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, folks want to cancel us, but we're not going anywhere. Local parents are pushing for safe schools. Huntsville is waging a campaign against homeless folks. A union lawyer talks to us about safety in the mines and more on today's program. Uh, if you want to be part of the program today, we've got a phone number, but the line is not open. Uh, we have got a jam-packed schedule, so uh, not going to be opening the phone lines, but you can text the phone number, 844-899-TVLR, and we might answer your questions or respond to your comments that come in that way if you want to uh, give us a give us a message via text, 844-899-8857, and you can always leave a voicemail throughout the week. If you want to find us during the week, haven't gotten enough of us on the radio, then uh, you can find us online. We're anywhere you find anything online, on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, anywhere you get your podcast, newly on TikTok, all at the Valley Labor Report. Uh, Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. Uh, If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, or buy our new hat, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm or patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And if you're a member of a union, you should get your local or international or whatever to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. So, uh, like I said, we've got a jam-packed schedule today, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it with Last Week in Southern Labor, which is a segment that we do every week where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird?, which compiles all of this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on outside of the South, then you should subscribe to that newsletter, whogetsthebird.substack.com. With new organizing, nine staffers of the Tennessee Democratic Party are joining IBEW Local 429. 157 nurses at the Coral Gables Hospital in Florida are organizing with National Nurses United. 65 paramedics at the University of Florida Health 
Shands Hospital in Gainesville, Florida, are organizing with AFSME Council 79. 60 janitors for Servicon in Fort Worth, Texas, are organizing with the machinists. 56 drivers for Keurig Dr. Pepper in Irving, Texas, are organizing with Teamsters, local 745. 35 workers at Avis Budget Car Rental in Savannah, Georgia, are organizing with the UAW, the United Auto Workers. 30 tugboat workers for Morin in Savannah, Georgia are unionizing with the Masters, Mates, and Pilots Union. 26 workers at the REA Magnet Wire Company factory in Ashland, Virginia, are organizing with IBEW Local 666. 12 clerks at Kroger's massive Memphis Distribution Center are joining Teamsters Local 667, which already represents the warehouse workers at that distribution center. Five workers at New Orleans Energy Efficiency Nonprofit EnergyWise are joining IBEW Local 130. Five construction workers at the Army Base in Fort Stewart, Georgia are joining AFGE Local 1922. In election wins and losses, Starbucks Workers United went 8 for 9 this week, adding 211 new members, including at one store in Denton, Texas. In strikes and bargaining, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, a Teamsters affiliate and one of a dozen and a half unions involved in national rail bargaining with the largest freight carriers, are taking a national strike vote. Starbucks Workers United members struck in Dallas, Texas, and Delta pilots at major hubs across the country organized their signature protest-slash-pickets as they work under a long-expired contract through the Railway Labor Act, which covers airline workers as well, Uh, and that basically means that contracts stay in effect even when they expire, which is maybe better than the alternative, but... It also de-incentivizes employers from coming to the table if their expired contracts continue. In internal union politics, the UAW presidential race just heated up with a new credible challenger to incumbent President Ray Curry announcing his intention to run. Uh, to run, Sean Fain is a longtime national staffer at the UAW out of the Chrysler, now Stellantis, department. He has made waves for publicizing some of the internal workings of the incumbent administration. The other heretofore announced challengers to Curry have either either never held local office, let alone have a national profile or bargaining experience, or are facing disqualification due to being retirees. The UAW convention, where nominations and important resolution fights will take place, will happen at the end of this month, and getting on the ballot is easy. The hard part is winning the first ever direct elections to national leadership, set to take place by mail ballot in the fall. And uh, so next up, we wanted to talk to you about this because it is incredibly funny. Um, I regret to inform you uh, (laughs) that we have been informed that the politically correct mob is after us. Oh, no. We've got some snowflakes out there that want to get us banned, that want to get us kicked off the radio or have us compelled to toe a certain line. Really? Yes. This is uh, some pretty serious stuff here, I think. So, Adam, let's go ahead and uh, we'll just 
we'll just let the uh, we'll just let the calls for censorship speak for itself. Let's play that call. James Huntsville, you're up. What are you hating on? I'm hating on Dale. Um, I was trying to think of the words to describe this fellow, but it's your left wing liberal union fanatical idiot on Saturday morning show talking <laughs> smack about Yaffe, which I think is unethical and unprofessional, and he's a jerk, and I'd like to see what you think about it. What was he saying about Yaffe, He was saying he was a terrible person, and he's pushing Christianity on people, and he's totally whacked out and full of crap and everything else. Well, I'll tell you I this. I could have used a few other words to describe the guy, but he's a jerk, idiot. <laughs> he may be. Let me ask you this. Would you prefer that I uh, mandate what my hosts on this radio station say? Off, yeah. So there you go. If you didn't catch that last part, Dale Jackson, uh, host of the Dale Jackson Show on the same radio station that we're on here in Huntsville, asked the guy, would you like it if I mandated what my host said? And the guy was like, you know what? Yeah. So... um, so there we go, folks. Uh, the mob, the cancel culture, it's coming after us. Um. <laughs> hmm. I, I thought that was uh, just left-wing liberal fanatics such as you, yeah. Jacob, that engaged in such behavior. Yeah, well, I guess not. I guess not. Uh, the allegations were that we called a Yaff- we called Yaffe, Yafster, a terrible person. That is not true. We did no such thing. Uh, the uh, Another allegation was that we said he wants to push Christianity on people, uh, which is true. Um, if he does, he, and that is true that we said that. He Yes. <laughs> uh, it, and and you, could, you could gather that uh, just by listening to the Yaffe program, uh, that he wants to push Christianity on people. Um, it's pretty evident. We said that he is full of crap. I don't know that we use that exact phrase, but I'm happy to. I'm happy to say that that, that Yaffe is full of crap. Um, we'll let the record show mostly true. We will let the record show mostly <laughs> true, if uh, if at least by implication, uh, and that we said Yaffe is totally quote totally whacked out. Um, again. I don't know if we use those words. We can we can say uh, mostly true by implication, <laughs> um, and <laughs> uh, but we did not call Yaffe a terrible person. I think that people can have terrible politics and be individually extremely nice people, which I have had every indication that Yaffe fits this bill. That he is an extremely nice person on. Uh, individual level uh, that he would, you know, that that he's never going to, you know, be rude to you or, you know, or or be super, uh, super hateful to you individually. I'm sure he can have, you know, I'm sure he's nice to like his children or whatever if he has any. And and, and his he's wife. always been pleasant. He's, when he's been, been pleasant on this with show. us. I've never had any any individual, but uh, uh, and so you know whatever. Like, I, but uh, 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 <laughs> you know that doesn't mean. That his politics and his prescriptions are not uh, tyrannical and bad, and so we're gonna, you know, we're gonna talk about that if we feel like it, and we did. But I do not think we were being unethical or unprofessional. I think we were being quite professional. And uh, you know, look, if this guy thinks that I'm a jerk. For responding to people's ideas and that that's unethical and that the way that I responded to his ideas is unethical and makes me a jerk. 
I mean, if he thinks that our response to Yaffe was so mean as to be unethical, I would hate to see what he thinks about literally any Dale Jackson segment. Right. I don't know if he's a regular listener to that program, but his feelings would probably get hurt half a dozen times every show if he listened to the Dale Jackson show regularly. And he thinks that our response to Yaffe was so mean as to be unethical. Listening to the Dale Jackson show would send him into a conniption, into a fetal position, rocking back and forth, crying like a toddler, is how he would react to listening to the Dale Jackson show if he thinks that we were too mean to Yaffe. So he wants us banned instead of challenging us in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, but Dale asked Yaffe what it was about, and I don't think that, you know, m- moving on from the calls of censorship, I don't think that Yaffe quite understood our segment. Um, let's play his response. Okay. All right. Yeah, if you don't say anything else the rest of the show, you're, you're banned from speaking because we don't want anyone uh, to be upset. Okay, thanks a lot, James. I appreciate it. Yaffe. But uh, I, I was just going to say, he tagged me in a post, and I, I watched some of it, and I wasn't going to respond to it, but so there to go. What do we got? Oh. What, 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 what do we see? Anything? Anything good? On um, what he said? No. Yeah. I mean, he basically, I, I was talking about how the left pushes basically their leftist religion on us, and then complained about us pushing Christianity on them and I was talking about the abortion issue and they were he was basically saying I've never ever seen a case where Christianity has been banned from the public square never seen it and I was like there was literally a Supreme Court case about yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> like that that is what we were talking about so whatever oh wow okay yeah so I mean I think what happened is he literally only watched the clip from the podcast that we posted on Twitter where you, Adam, said that you've never seen Christianity be pushed out of the public square, by which I think you meant that no one is being made not to be a Christian or to practice or or to practice their religion publicly. I mean, we Correct. see... I, I we, personally we see, have never witnessed the long arm of the state intervene and tell someone they cannot be a Christian or cannot practice Christianity. Right. Never witnessed which is it different than Which is different than saying that people in their capacity as a government official, should not be pushing Christianity. Correct. That is not taking... because Two different things. Two different things. You can be a Christian publicly, and Christianity cannot be being pushed out of the public square in that way, while at the same time, us having as a society a standard that our government officials are not going to push a religious doctrine on children. So, so you know, and, and, and uh, you know, our segment was about Yaffe wanting to use public funds to divert to theocratic private schools. It's up in full on all of our platforms, YouTube podcasts, and the segment that we were responding to from Yaffe is on his podcast feed as well. I'm happy to put our segment up against his and happy to hear any arguments against what we had to say in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, But in the meantime, here's what I have to say to the people trying to cancel us. Up yours, woke moralists. Yeah. All right. Up yours, woke moralists. You're not going to cancel me. Um, As long as those checks keep coming in every month, I imagine uh, Dale has no interest in that either. Yeah. Uh, If you want to cry about it and tell us that we should be censored, feel free to text us at 844-899-TVLR.
um, we'll be happy to read your Yeah, texts. keep keep the hate coming. Keep the if hate If you are coming. a regular listener because you hate us and you hate what we have to say, but you listen every week <laughs> we just to get it. irritated, we appreciate hey, it. really appreciate that. Yeah. I hope it gives you motivation to like work out in the gym, you know, <laughs> burn some calories, get your energy flowing. Yeah. It's all good. Uh, so next up, we've got Mike Bailey on the line. He's in the Zoom room, uh, and he is a parent in Madison City who's been pushing for uh, some safety standards in Madison City School. So, uh, Mike, would you care to introduce yourself and talk about um, what uh, what this campaign is and, and what got you involved in it? Absolutely. Thank you so much. My name is Mike Bailey, and I'm a malware analyst with an incident investigations company. I work remotely, and I've been homeschooling my child since the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, My wife has not returned to the workforce. As you know, the burdens are unequally um, distributed to women when it comes to these economic impacts. And so here we are experiencing that directly. Um, But we're just parents who are looking to stand up and solve the problem uh, where we've got all these massive ESSER funds that are available and they're not all spent yet. And there are solutions that can directly address the problems of the doubling and tripling of chronic absenteeism in schools, uh, the student illness, the absenteeism that happens from that, the parents getting sick, having to take off work, um, teacher shortages, substitute teacher shortages, having the national card come in and teach your school in New Mexico. Like we don't need that. We don't need to randomly go virtual because we didn't plan for this. There's actually stuff we can do that. Um, I could tell you more about, um, in, in a, in a subsequent part. Here. Yeah. But. I, and I think one of the things that I wanted to emphasize and why I thought it was important that you come on the show today is because obviously indoor air quality is a labor issue. Uh, it's always been a labor issue. It affects people's working conditions and their overall safety on the job. Uh, and when it comes to public schools, we're talking about the working conditions of educators and the learning conditions of students. And we know that responses by school districts to COVID has been pretty uneven. Uh, it's obviously had impacts on those learning conditions and working conditions. It's also been uh, subject to a very nasty, political, divisive series of debates And one of the things that's been really left out of this debate, in my opinion, uh, and underreported in the coverage, is indoor air quality of the schools themselves and how that can actually play a role in COVID transmission and other illnesses uh, and how we can actually do something about it. So, Mike, could you tell us what are some of the highlights of what you've learned about school indoor air quality and why is that important? You know, it was really highlighted as a labor issue when there was OSHA testimony for four days with the nurses union saying, please implement these things that we know work. And the hospitals themselves were saying, there's no problem here. <laughs> and the nurses unions were, were bringing these things up. There's been a lot of fatalism, a lot of, you know, we're going to have to take this lying down. There's nothing we can do. Uh, but the solution is actually really clear. The CDC has found that in an actual classroom, HEPA filters at five air changes per hour reduce the exposure to particles that would be capable of carrying SARS-CoV-2 into your airways by 65%. In a Hume Foundation study in Italy, they found that six air changes per hour with mechanical ventilation got you a factor of six reduction in transmission. These are real classrooms, real students, real SARS-CoV-2. And Gaith University in Frankfurt found that HEPA filtration getting six air changes per hour had a factor of six reduction, also 82.5% reduction in the inhaled dose. And what happened, here's what happened. In Georgia schools that took action, not even achieving these particular air change rates, but simply if 
if a school implemented both ventilation and HEPA filtration, those schools in Georgia had 48% less incidents of COVID. There is certainly something we can do. There's certainly something we can do. Wow. I mean, I think yeah, that's that, huge. I to- mean, that bears repeating. There was a lot of number. You, you know, you said you said a, a, a lot of different things, factors and, and, and numbers and multiplications and all this. But the, the, the thing the, to underline, italicize and emphasize is that these the implementation of uh, these air filtration and, systems yeah, and, decreased mm-hmm. covid cases in Georgia in, in Georgia schools that implemented them. By 50 percent, approximately 48 percent, about half. Yeah. And that's that's not even using the key parameters that we know can increase and maximize this solution. So I believe that if we attend to hitting six air changes per hour, as is recommended by the Epidemic Task Force chair, uh, Bill Banfleth, he's part of the ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force, and he recommends this six air changes per hour. If we do the math, it's a little bit of algebra, but if we do the math in these you know, school spaces, we can have our teachers and students just going to school like they're supposed to. <laughs> no problem. That, yeah, that would be normalcy. Sorry. That is so right. huge because we can argue over masks and, and vaccines to are blue in the face. And obviously they're very important in terms of this pandemic. But here's a here's a very tangible example of something that can be done that would significantly improve the material conditions of workers and students alike and significantly improve community transmission of COVID and other illnesses. And and as you alluded to, that helps with attendance, both of staff and students, which in turn helps with academic achievement. Um, It's, you know, it's all connected here. And so I think that's really, really important. The fact that there are measures that can be taken uh, in terms of portable HEPA filters, upgrading the HVAC filtration system, actually having procedures and personnel to monitor this air quality to determine what are we doing and is it enough? Is it hitting the standards? You you put that together and that's something very concrete. And to me, what I like here is that this is common ground that we can find that is for the common good, regardless of how you feel about how the pandemic has been Uh, dealt with politically by either party, we can all agree that we want less kids and students and teachers being sick. And if there's something we can do to make that happen that doesn't get into all this controversy, well, then, hell, that seems like low-hanging fruit. I mean, am I summing this up okay, Mike? Yeah, especially if the funding is there. I mean, it's the funding is on the table. And schools, like you pointed out, schools are concerned about the learning loss, the disruption that has happened. And rightly so. And so they've been allocating a lot of that funding to address those issues. But those issues are a symptom of the problem. Mm -hmm. What we have an opportunity to do here before this funding expires is address the root cause of the problem. The fact is that water, we know we need to treat. Nobody, nobody says you need to just boil your own water. It's a personal choice whether you want to take the risk of drinking water that's got diseases in it. Okay, we don't do that with water because we learn. But we're in a place where we're, we're going to have to experience a paradigm shift. Um, fortunately, there's money on the table. I think um, you might want to ask me about funds maybe next. Yeah, right? yeah, that, that's where I was going with this is, is yeah. that not only is this something that can be fixed, there's actually money there to fix it. Could you speak on that for a sec? Happy to. Okay, um, I've got a funny way to couch this, okay? Um, <clears throat> I think we should crowdfund it, okay? Through, um, through a system where parents and everybody in the community would put their money together and... Um, 
No, I'm just kidding. We already did that. <laughs> it's called paying our U.S. taxes. We paid right. our taxes. Okay, we already crowdfunded. Okay, we have mothers in uh, Hoover, Alabama, who are who are crowdfunding again a second time to be able to put HEPA filters into schools. They shouldn't have to do that. We already did the crowdfunding. It's called our U.S. taxes that we paid. We have these ESSER dollars that are available to schools, and we have a lot of information through Alabama A Plus Education Partnership which is a policy organization that tracks ESSER funding and spending in Alabama. And we have a lot of information about what funds have been spent, what funds are available. The plans that have been made by schools can be changed. And I think they should be changed to directly address these causes because the cost uh, of these facility improvements and the cost of putting HEPA filtration can be low enough that, I mean, for that, for that price and with the money available, we should, we should take action on this opportunity before the opportunity evaporates. It could cost, depending on the HEPA filter that you use, it may cost as little as for eight foot ceilings, it could cost as little as 60 cents per square foot to get the HEPA filters into a given space and get six air changes per hour. That's assuming eight foot ceilings. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the thing to take away here is that this is so doable and there's money available. Uh, I think the timing is very important here because, as you mentioned, this money will be used or will disappear. Uh, so it's 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 an opportunity we have to jump on it. Uh, and the other thing I will mention is that in the state of Alabama, every single public school district by September 15th must have their new budget submitted for, for fiscal year 2023. And by September 15th, they would have already had to have had at least two public budget hearings uh, and solicit public feedback and publicly discuss, approve, and vote upon that budget. So we've got time between now and September 15th to do our research and, and get to work advocating. So, Yeah, Mike, when are those public hearings? Do you know? I actually don't. I would act, I'd have to ask yeah, my wife. Typically, my it's going to be in, in August. Um, so as school returns in August, uh, you'll start to get notices that the school boards are, are putting their budget hearings together. And in some school districts, that's really one of your only times you can actually speak at the public school board meeting. Um, they're required to at least give you the opportunity to ask questions and submit written questions for written responses. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, s- some school districts vary in transparency. So, uh, again, it's an opportunity to, to dig into it. Um, and I wanted to ask, Mike, how how is it going so far, this campaign to improve air quality locally? Like, where do some of the local school districts stand and what's their reaction been so far? Sure. So on June 2nd, we had a a phone meeting with uh, Mr. John Jones, who is the let me actually scroll up in my notes here and make sure I get this right. Um, He is. I don't have his title, but he's he works in facilities for the schools in Madison City and spoke also with Michael Gunter and Kevin Guest, the maintenance supervisor. And we forwarded information to them and to Superintendent Nichols on um, on this topic. And we were expecting an answer, hopefully um, the 24th of June. They reasonably, I mean, we had a lot of questions that we also asked them reasonably. They asked if we could um, have answers to that um, after July 4th. So we asked them this past week whether there were answers and haven't heard back. So we're at that point. We're going to find out if we're, you know, are we working together or are we going to have to push 
<laughs> right. um, to, to make this make sense. Um, so that's what's happening in Madison City. In Madison County, uh, the parents we're working with there have been speaking with uh, Mr. Joseph Cuzzert, who's the director of operations, and he will have a phone call. Um, I'm sorry, Mr. Malone, the superintendent of system services, will have a phone call uh, with a parent who we're working with there. Uh, in Limestone County and Huntsville, Huntsville City, we're looking to work with parents um, who we're actively talking to. You might know some of them. <laughs> right, right. So we've got some action happening in Madison City, Madison County. Definitely need some some volunteers in Limestone County and Huntsville City and some of the other school districts here in our listening area. Um, so, yeah, I think right now it's kind of the research phase. Um, if you're listening to this and you have students in a school, kids, grandkids, ne- nieces, nephews, if you work in a school or you have, you know, uh, loved ones who do work in a school, you, you know, the first thing would be getting familiar with this research and then researching in terms of what what are your local schools already doing on this front, if anything, um, and how have they been spending these federal funds that have been flowing in um, since the pandemic? So uh, I wanted to kind of close with tell us what is coming up next in terms of the campaign and then how can folks get connected and get more involved? Yeah, so um, definitely I'd like to offer to share the resources we've been using to ask questions in in various schools. We've actually been working with parents in Connecticut, Maryland, Michigan, San Antonio, Austin, et cetera, to give them information about what we're doing here and share what questions we're asking. Because before you try to tell somebody what they need to be doing, you need to find out maybe what are they doing. Right. Um, so we have a list of questions that we think are to the point uh, and that have to do with what we're asking. We have a, a great body of information that we've gathered about the recommendations that the CDC has put out there and a great body of information about research that bears that out and says, yeah, we really ought to be doing that. So I would invite anybody who wants to make a difference in this both locally and anybody outside of our area to visit our Facebook page. It's Indoor Air Care Advocates. And if you go to facebook.com slash Indoor Air Care Advocates, all one word, um, that'll get you there. Also on Twitter, we are IAQ Advocates. That stands for Indoor Air Quality. And you could email us at indooraircareadvocates at gmail.com. We were planning on having a meeting next week, and that is uh, postponed. Uh, so stay tuned for more information on our Facebook and our Twitter, and definitely email and get in touch with us, get in touch with us and we'll share those uh, materials with you. Awesome. Yeah, this is a, uh, a great campaign and really uh, super common sense. We've gotten the money. I mean, and we can I mean, this is something that, you know, we should be it, it would be good even if there weren't a pandemic because nobody likes to get sick anyway. And, uh, and you know, I remember growing up uh, every now and then every few years we would have school closing because uh the flu was going around and so many people mm-hmm. were out of were out of school and this is and you know i think everybody uh really does want to minimize school closures and when we're talking about decreasing covid cases in schools by 50 percent you're going to decrease uh the nece- uh, the necessity for closing schools because of covid so this is a super common sense thing uh really good stuff uh follow those links that mike gave you everybody if you if you've got a stake in this and uh, mike we appreciate your time thank you so much Take thank care. you yep All right, folks, we're going to be going to a break. On the other side, we're going to be playing an interview with the folks from Love Huntsville about the city's harassment campaign against homeless folks and what they are doing um, in response.
We'll be right back. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you, too, can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. It's that time of year again, Christmas in July. Monday, July 25th at 305 8th Street. Christmas in December is when we receive the gifts that we wish for. Christmas in July at 305 is a time to address residents' needs. Clothing, socks, underwear, bedding, and more. <laughs> or maybe just a treat or two thrown in for fun. To add to the fun, individually wrap each item. A needs list for each resident will be provided. Email CYDNEY at 305 8 Call 256-777-9642. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old 
Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. All right, folks. Thank you for joining us. We have a couple of local organizers here in Huntsville on the show. Uh, you may remember we've talked briefly about the homelessness situation in Huntsville. It's made the news. Uh, and this is obviously very relevant to working class people and those of us who care about workers and their livelihoods. So we wanted to talk to folks who are on the ground and are doing good work around this issue and hear from them what's actually going on. And more importantly, how can you who are listening or viewing out there, how can you get involved? How can you help this effort? So, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Uh I think we'll just start with uh, each of you, if you'll briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your organizations. Uh, Tia, if you want to start. All right. Thank you, um, Adam, for having us. Um, I'm Tia Turner, and I am a part, co-founded uh, a nonprofit organization here in Huntsville, Alabama called Love Huntsville. Um, we started, got our start pretty much last year. We're doing a lot of voting rights stuff, and um, we got involved with some of our local encampments. And from there, there was an eviction happening um, at this place called Mill Street. And from there, we've been involved with the community or the, our unhoused neighbors and really just advocating for policies, housing, helping with um, the encampment closures, moving people, building re- solid relationships with a lot of our folks. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I'm Tahira Osborne. I am co-founder of Huntsville Bail Fund, um, which is a local bail fund that grew out of the um, 2020 protests that happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder here in Huntsville. Um, Out of that effort, we have tried to situate ourselves as a fund that really is speaking up for people whose experiences often don't really make it to the media, um, experiences of arrest and incarceration. Um, We happen to have one of the deadliest jails in Alabama, which probably means we have one of the deadliest jails in the nation Mm -hmm. um, here in Madison County. Um, so with, uh, learning about these evictions, cause we've now had, I think seven in the last 12 months, um, of evictions of different encampments here in Huntsville. Um, the response has largely been from the city, either pack up and leave right now, or you're going to jail. Um, which of course is a huge concern to us using jail, um, really as a replacement for acknowledging these people as our neighbors and that they do require, safe sanitary housing. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great segue into fill us in on what's really going on right now, uh, particularly with the Derrick Street camp and how has the city responded? So Derrick has been up a little over a, a decade They had about, I would say, about 80 people in that uh, specific camp. It has fluctuated now since um, the encampment eviction was um, announced by the city. Um, It was announced back in April through the COC, and we had been trying to organize around that uh, encampment evictions. Past encampment evictions have gone um, not so great. There's been people whose rights um, were violated. 
inhibited uh, due to property um, being destroyed, things like that. Just a lot of things that has happened um, in the past. So we kind of stepped in, love Huntsville and um, Huntsville Bell Fund and got some people to rally around us um, like ACLU of Alabama, SPLC, the National Homelessness uh, Law Center as well, and a lot of other amazing local um, nonprofits and organizations and organizers. And so from there with Derek, um, it has it's, it's very multifaceted. A lot of different issues uh, pertaining to this camp. The city has said that uh, they were closing it down because it just wasn't safe, sanitary. And, um, you know, we found out that uh, there was a local um, business here that actually was wanting to, she owns part of the land that Derek Camp, the Derek Camp sits on, and she actually wanted to buy the rest of the land. And so now here we are having to close down the camp. And so the city um, pretty much stated, well, you know, there's someone that wants to buy it. She already owns part of it. There's nothing that we can do. And so we just jumped into jumped into action because of past experiences that we've had, like I said, with people's rights and um, just the whole encampment experience as far as the evictions not being handled with dignity and compassion. Um, Tahiri, you want to jump in in there? Um, yeah, I guess I would say that, you know, these people really are our neighbors. I think that is something that we really tend to lose when we're talking about these camps. And I would invite anybody who ha- is curious about these conditions to go and come out with us and visit the camps and see what they're like and get to know these people because they are our neighbors. They are part of our community. Um, most of them are working people. Most of these people have jobs and they're still not able to save and transition by themselves into a stable, permanent housing situation. It is so hard once you have lost your housing to get back into housing. And, you know, through these experiences, um, you know, unfortunately, I've also witness some of the fallout that happens from these evictions. Whether we want to admit it or not, they really are violent. To lose all of your personal possessions and have them bulldozed, to have a cop who is knifing up your tent while you're still sleeping inside of it, that's a really traumatic experience. Um, you know, and that's not something that has to happen. That's part of why we're doing this advocacy, why we reached out to the city, why we've been trying to work with other larger organizations who have experience on these issues. It doesn't have to happen happen like this. The city can have what they want, which is clean sanitary areas, public land, keeping that safe and clean, understandable. We can do that and not traumatize these people and not send them to jail and, you know, not completely destroy any of the progress that they've made. And also provide housing. Yeah, that's that's a huge part of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a huge part of our advocacy push is to Stop, put a halt to encampment evictions until we implement housing. That's the big issue. We are facing a lack of affordability in housing. Mm-hmm. We are facing a housing shortage. Huntsville now is the, considered the number one place to live within the United States. And with that, that draws so many people here because of the workforce and so many different factors. Um, but we can't do it at the sacrifice and um, of our 
unhoused neighbor. Like uh, like Tahira said, many of them have jobs um, with displacing people. Now, you know, a lot of people either have to go find private property or, you know, things like being displaced and pushed out to the county, which we've experienced in the past. And because now they're pushed out to the county, there's no transportation um, because we don't have bus stops at, um, in the county. So there's so many things um, that just being able to easily access resources that the city has to um, the hat has the ability to provide when you displace people, it, it cuts that access off. And that is what we've really pushed for the city to halt evictions until we come up with an actual plan for housing, till we actually come up with a, a plan for just how they're going to combat and try to end um, homelessness here within Huntsville, Alabama. We have cities and states and counties all over the country that's actually on the forefront of this issue and making it a priority. And what Huntsville, we've not made it a priority. And because of that, it causes a lot of different issues and barriers for this community. Absolutely. And I think you you touched on basically what the, the pressing question for me was, if the city is planning on shutting down this camp and, there, and there's potentially 80 people uh, living there, what, you know, where, where would they go? Uh, because the city, it sounds like, is not providing any alternatives uh, and, and does not have a plan to provide housing. So, you know, based on your experiences and, and your interactions, both with the city as well as this population, what do they expect and where do they expect these folks to go? Well, I'll start and then I'll let Tahira go if she wants to take it. Um, but pretty much what what's happened in the past with past encampment closures, especially in October, we rallied around, tried to get the city um, to do a, la- a lot of things. Um, there has been some type of structure, a little bit of structure that has happened around encampment evictions, which is getting organizations in, um, involved back in last March. Um, there was no one helping uh, with evictions. And that's why we ended up stepping up because we had cops literally there ready to take people to jail by the t- 630 in the morning um, when we arrived and they didn't have to be off the premises until five. Um, so now they've gotten um organizations to somewhat be involved, but the practices around that it still is at the cost of their rights, at the cost of their dignity, things of that matter. So now the city has said, well, we have organizations helping um, and the solutions are either go to shelter, which is just not a valuable solution for many of our unhoused friends because of the different barriers, whether it be have needing certain med- uh, medications that they're prescribed by their doctor and they can't take them into um, the shelters here. Um, We have these situations like um, having the ability or needing um, machines to help with breathing. Um, Last October, we had a a lady that needed a a machine to take into the shelter because she had COPD and she was unable to take things into shelters. And then just simply autonomy, Having, having your autonomy taken away, phones taken away at certain times of the day if you work at night um, but the shelters close at a certain time it's just so many different barriers and so that's been a solution that the city has stated they said they had a hundred beds but that just doesn't work for many people and you also don't get the level of case management that you need 
Um, outside of that, it's been if you find a job or housing somewhere else in another city or something, we can give you a bus ticket and mm-hmm. um, have you go there. But outside of that, there, there's been um, no solution uh, outside of shelter, offering shelters and offering um, bus tickets to go somewhere else. Um, we don't have housing. And that's something that we've been trying to push for uh, to hear. Um, just one other point I'd like to make is that the emergency shelter that is available in Huntsville is all religiously affiliated, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and which is not to say that those organizations aren't carrying out a mission that they care about um, and are trying to do good work. Um, But that's not going to work for everyone. We don't have publicly supported emergency shelter in Huntsville. Um, You know, so that is also another consideration that people who are considering shelters have to think about, am I going to be comfortable in this environment? Am am I going to feel respected in this environment? If I have a different belief system, um, you know, is that going to be respected? Am I going to be pressured into participating in certain services? Um, You know, those are questions that I think people really have to grapple with that most people are not really considering is like, am I going to have to participate in this prayer to eat today? Um, And that's not really something that I we feel that everyone should universally have to consider. Right, right. Absolutely. Because obviously the, the power dynamics there, um, it, it's just unfortunate that that's in some cases the best option being offered. And, you know, something that, that we believe passionately on this show is that the way you treat the least of these is a reflection of your priorities, and Tia, you mentioned earlier about Huntsville's, you know, rankings. Uh, it seems like every few weeks we get uh, news updates where Huntsville is topping a, a list. Uh, we know Huntsville is the fastest growing city in the state. It's uh, one of the wealthiest cities in the southeast. And rather than use this this potential and this great wealth and expertise that we have in this city to take care of the least of these, the what I'm hearing is that the city leadership, the city establishment is determined to just get rid of the least of these. Yeah, uh, I think their uh, their real intention is just to disappear these people, right? Most of the previous encampments um, evictions have been spurred by some sort of like impression that these are a blight, right? They're mm-hmm. visible for 565 and that's embarrassing to us. Um, you know, people are driving by and they can see that we have an unhoused community in Huntsville and that's embarrassing to us. So instead of actually addressing the root of that problem, which is how do we have so many chronically unsheltered people in Huntsville, we're saying, let's just disappear them. We're going to send them away. We're going to push them out onto private property. We're going to send them out into the shadows. We're going to put them in jail, um, but never actually offer any real solutions. Yeah. And I would even piggyback off of um, to hear, I mean, the city has grappled with, well, we're giving money to uh, nonprofits, right? Um, And many of our nonprofits, they're service based, and we have a lot of great nonprofits here. But what we're seeing based on research, there has to be equal effort for city government to actually step up and step in. There's things that just nonprofits and organizations cannot do. If you're sitting, if, if people are going to private property and then um, you have law enforcement being 
being called called by businesses and other property owners saying we don't want this person um, on our property, then you have citations. And when if you get a citation, you have to go to court. But if you don't have an address, you get a summons. And if you miss your summons because you don't have a dress, uh, then you you're once they do locate you, you're in jail. So those are things that um, that we've seen also within our judicial system being an increase of. And so with all those different factors we have to take a holistic approach which is something that we've been trying to push the city to do um, you can't just give money to nonprofits that are just service-based it just the research shows that does does not work alone you have to provide housing you have to provide permanent sustainable housing and you also have to create um, a, just like an ecosystem that helps people get on their feet and be able to do all the things that they um, gifted to do. We have so many amazing people that that are our unhoused friends. That like I like Emma, um, like Tahira said earlier that work. Um, they're gifted in art. So many amazing things, and they just need the opportunity for people to pretty much just bet on them. And that's what we've been trying to put the um, get the city to do is implement policies and implement housing. Uh, we need housing. Uh, you can't fix the issue of homelessness without having housing that's the critical uh that's the critical component to all of this absolutely i mean and this is the year 2022 we can do this and and we should do this and and i think it's so important the work that y'all are doing um individually and with your organizations so now that we kind of have have a the gist of what's happening here Tell us what's coming up next and uh, what's on the, the horizon for your organizations and, and most importantly for this population. Um, so the Derrick Street North eviction um, is expected to take place on Friday the 15th. So coming up quite soon. Um, I know this is airing on Saturday. So we are holding a legal observer training at 3 p.m. You can find it on all of our Huntsville Bill Fund social media. It should be up on Love Huntsville social media by now to register. It's a totally free training um, put on by the National Lawyers Guild, the Alabama chapter of the National Lawyers Guild. Um, we need legal observers there. Um, and we're going to hopefully set up shifts with legal observers, both the day before and the day of the eviction. Um, this is a way to be a new neutral third party, you are a non-participant, what your job is, is to watch um, and to observe the interactions between police and the people who are experiencing this eviction um, as a safeguard. Um, We also need volunteers who are going to be able to do the packing and heavy lifting and um, practical moving. Um, So, Tia, can you talk about how volunteers can volunteer with Love Huntsville? Yes, sure. So this hunt um, this Sunday, actually, we will be hosting our um, our uh, we host a service day. Um, It's every other week uh, we try we do dinners but we also I think the what I love the most we provide medical care as well so we have a free clinic that our street meds they come out and they check people um, any wounds anything that may that they may need in that moment and we take this time to data gather data on th- different things that our um, unhoused friends need and so we do a lot of the, those service dates and really focus in on what this community needs when we're out there so this Sunday we'll be out at Derrick Street so if you'd like to come out and volunteer we'll be out there at 5 p.m. this Sunday and 
And that'll be an opportunity to connect with us to see how you can be involved with this uh, upcoming move because we're going to need to all hands on deck. And um, we have a lot of this, our friends that are disabled. And so a lot of them, they can't do a lot on their own. So we'll be out there um, helping uh, along with other organizations, trying to help people in as safe as possible, as, as with much dignity as possible, move people to where they prefer. And so if you would like to help, um, you can reach us on our social media handles at Love Huntsville um, and let us know how you want to be a part. And also, um, we, donations always are great. Um, the, the, any donation that we receive goes directly to our friends, unhoused friends through so many different services that we provide. And so you can go to Instagram at love.huntsville um, to click on a, our link tree and you can see how to donate. You can see how to connect with us. You can send us a DM, whatever um, is going to be necessary. However you want to uh, get involved, we're here. Awesome. And so we have several opportunities for folks to get involved. Uh, Saturday the 9th, there's a legal observer training at 3 o'clock. On Sunday the 10th at 5 p.m. is a service day out at the camp uh, run by Love Huntsville, uh, where they're going to be doing some prep, basically. Um, And then on Friday the 15th, there's a need for folks who can volunteer to be a witness, to bear witness to what could happen what will happen uh so some great opportunities to get involved for those of you who are interested in helping and as a reminder you can find love huntsville on social media huntsville bail fund on social media uh donations are always accepted and always appreciated i'm very sure uh were were there any other things that i did not ask that y'all wanted to uh, share with our audience today I do want to say this really quick. So SPLC, they've been very involved with this move um, moving forward. Um, the last couple of things, they've been interacting with the city and they are legally actually representing um, some of the our unhoused friends that are in the camp to make sure we've gone through this process called reasonable accommodations. So because we have so many of our disabled um, friends that are disabled, that's within Derrick North. um, We went and take, took this process to pretty much accommodate them as best we can um, as they are getting ready to close this camp. So um, although the eviction is still happening, we do have so many people that are being represented by Love Huntsville, the Huntsville Bell Fund and SPLC to make sure that they're handled um, with as much care as possible. And that's a process that we've taken um, through the city. It's a city of uh, a process that we take. It's um the American Disability Act, which is a legal, um, a legal situation that Tahir can talk a little bit more about. <laughs> um, yeah. So under the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, these residents are entitled to reasonable accommodations because of their disabilities that can look like they need assistance with moving um, and packing up and moving because they're not able to physically pack up their possessions or remove them from that property on their own. Um, That would be considered a reasonable accommodation. Some of these people do need shelter and they do have medical equipment. So a reasonable accommodation would be to bring that equipment with them into shelter. Um, You know, so there are a variety of things that we're asking for. We're not just saying the city should let 
encampments exist for the rest of all time. What we are asking for is that the encampments that are here are held to standards, which includes the city participating in helping keep these camps sanitary and safe and to present options that will reduce this population so that we are getting people out of these camps permanently, not just displacing them and sending them, you know, into the four winds, but actually getting them into a stable situation, which only benefits the economy, right? That only benefits all of us for people to be able to be stable and, and maintain employment and participate in public life. Right. It's it's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. And Tia, Tahira, I, I really appreciate y'all joining us. And I appreciate the work that y'all are doing and the work your organizations are doing. So love Huntsville, Huntsville Bail Fund. They're doing great work. Really encourage y'all to check it out. Uh, follow them on social media, please. If you, if you can donate your time or your money, your energy, uh, your encouragement, it's certainly appreciated. And uh, we look forward to talking with y'all down the road as we can get some updates on how this eviction uh, occurs, uh, as well as how the legal challenges unfold and long term, the actual plan for how Huntsville can address homelessness in this city. We can do it. We We can can do it. We can do it. Thank you so much, Adam, for having us in the Valley Labor Report. We really appreciate you all. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. We are going to take another break, and we will be right back. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. See you in a bit. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity. Y'all. 
Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And uh, we just wrapped up a conversation with the folks at Love Huntsville and the Huntsville Bail Fund as they are uh, working to respond to the city of Huntsville, uh, their eviction of homeless folks at the Derrick Street Camp. Um, you can learn more about them by going to their link tree. It is, uh, let's see, what is it? Link tr.ee slash love Huntsville. You can donate and, uh, and, and and do other stuff there. They've got a bunch of trainings and some really cool ways to get involved and uh, help the homeless community here in Huntsville and uh, move towards some real long-term solutions that will benefit them and the rest of the city. Um, so definitely look into that. And if you missed any part of the show, you can always go back and watch the stream on YouTube. If you search for The Valley Labor Report, you can find us on all of your podcasting apps. We're newly on TikTok. You can go back and watch individual clips on our YouTube channel. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. All good ways uh, to catch up if you missed any part of the show. So up next, we've got a friend of the show, sponsor, couldn't do it without him, Jack Jacobs, attorney at law with uh, Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs, LLC, uh, down in Birmingham. Jack, appreciate 
appreciate you joining the show. Well, good morning, Adam and Jacob. I'm glad to be here this morning. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So I uh, wanted you to come on because I saw your tweet about a case that you were working on um, involving mine safety uh, for um, a couple of miners that, that there was an incident. And, and so you were um, working to enforce their contract. So talk to us about um, – well, first off – there are still miners, there are still union mines in Alabama besides the Brookwood mine that is on strike. Is that right? Yeah, there are two other uh, union mines operating right now in Alabama. There is the uh, Shoal Creek mine, which used to be owned by Drummond Company, uh, was sold a few years ago. And then the Oak Grove mine, uh, which actually was a U.S. steel mine for a number of years, but has been sold off and changed hands. Uh, probably last fifteen years or so, uh, but it's it's been a, a union mine as well. Gotcha, gotcha. And so the the uh, and 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 this is at one of those mines, is that right? This incident. Actually, this is at a this is at Warrior Mat. Uh, this this incident occurred actually prior to the strike that started. Okay, um, and it's been going on that long. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I didn't realize that. Well, so talk to us about talk to us about the the facts of the case and 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 what was happening. Okay, sure. So, I mean, generally it's just just to give you an idea, these these mines are just massive. Uh the you know, you you can typically at the start of the shift you're traveling, you know, 1800 feet down an elevator shaft, which is basically as as high as the One World Trade Center is tall. And then you're traveling, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten miles from there to your work location. So, I mean, that's just to give you an idea of just how how expansive these operations are. Um, but you know, we have two um, two guys who are running uh, what's called a long wall shear uh, underground, and they had been instructed uh, by management that they were supposed to operate the shear at a certain speed. Now these and these also are pretty massive pieces of equipment. I mean, they not to get too far into the weeds, but basically these machines cut uh, three feet thick um, blocks of coal um, onto a conveyor belt that runs about 1,500 feet long. And so they're cutting that much coal. Um, that's how long this, I guess, the shear operation is, 1,500 feet. And so they, they've been told um, to to operate at a certain speed and they weren't doing it because they didn't feel a little safe. Um, they have, you know, you have issues of methane gas in the mines and, and sometimes the, the way these machines operate, you get a lot of uh, debris in the, in the, uh, in the walkway, uh, rock and dust um, just kind of builds up and it becomes very hard to maneuver everything as, as fast as management might want. And so they weren't going that fast. And so uh, the crazy thing is, is that they've got a member of management who has an, uh, an iPhone app that can watch how fast the coal is being cut. And so, you know, he just gets angry and angrier that they're not getting they're cutting it as fast as he um, thinks they should be. I mean, he's not there. He's at home. Uh, just watching his iPhone, he can just kind of see how fast it's go, or, or I guess, or not going, 
uh, from his perspective, but not really making any inquiries like, hey, you know, what, what's going on down there is our reason. And, you know, finally, you know, he's just had enough and says, send them out. And they're like, you know, you know, we just can't cut it that fast. It's not safe. And so ultimately it, it, um, uh, it just became a situation where they were terminated uh, for basically exercising their rights to, you know, work safely. So their, their rights under the uh, you know, Mine Safety Act, uh, they have and they exercise those rights to say, look, you know, we're trying to work safely and, and y'all are not letting us do that. And you've retaliated against us. So they exercise those rights and then they're um, uh, going forward. So uh, and this started back, like I said, started before the strike occurred. Uh, kind of the trick, one of the tricky thing was, you know, you've, in, in, for minors, they file these cases. IMSHA investigates. They send an investigator out. IMSHA is the Mine Safety and Health Administration. Um, and then they send, they have investigators who handle these situations. They come out, take statements from everybody, and then the, they kind of submit their recommendation about what they think should happen. So that, that went along, and there's administrative judges involved, and they said, look, these guys should be reinstated um, and, and put back to work. Um, but, the bad thing was is that in the interim, everybody, the, the mine went on strike. So they were reinstated, but at, at that point, it's like, well, I mean, we can't cross the picket line, which they haven't. So um, they're not back to work uh, for that reason. But otherwise, they would be at this point if it's not for the strike. And so when was that administrative law judge, uh, when did that ruling come down? That was an initial ruling. It's it, um, and, and Warrior Met really didn't fight that part of it as far as a temporary reinstatement. And I think that came in around, uh, I think it was mid-April of 2021. So just a couple weeks after the strike had started. And were they able to get back pay for the time that we, they uh, should have been working? That's what we're litigating right now. That that was what they had a hearing about Um the week, I mean, last week when we tweet, I, I commented about it. It was basically the uh, ultimate, well, the ultimate the initial adjudication of the case. We're having the judge listen to the facts. People present testimony just like it's, a, you know, any other trial, and, and the judge will make a decision. But that hasn't, that decision hasn't reached yet. Gotcha, gotcha. And so the the yeah. your representation then is paid for by the UMWA. Is that right? Actually, no. Um, uh, it, my rep- I, I, I'm doing it. I guess it, the local had contacted me about it. Said, "Hey, these guys uh, have gotten retaliated against, and and uh, you need to, you know, can you help them out with it?" I'm not sure. You know, um, uh, kind of one of my joys is, is helping you know guys in these situations uh, you know, try and, and fight back when they're being retaliated against. Um, so, and right now, I haven't been paid. Um, you know, it's it's contingent, I guess, on an award from the judge hmm. um, awarding me attorney's fees. So, but it, it it's kind of I, Department of Labor is also involved, so they have their lawyers doing a lot of the legwork in the case. Um, so, um, it's not not as time consuming, uh, I guess, intensive for me. But what is your what is your feeling about the uh, the way that this case is going to shake out? I feel pretty good about it. Um, you know, the, 
the good thing for these guys is is that Warrior Met actually had some pretty good safety policies in place mm-hmm. about what they're supposed to do. Basically, their safety policy says if you see an unsafe condition, safe condition, unsafety, unsafe condition, correct it. You know, and 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 go on, which is we're like, well, that's what they did. And they said, if you can't correct it, then report it to management. And then when they reported to management, they later fired somebody. <laughs> right. So, uh, Warrior Matt didn't even follow their own policy. Uh, and so, uh, and we had testimony from actually my manager at the time, who's since retired, that seemed to, you know, cooperate all of our arguments. So it was really, we appreciated Warrior Matt putting him up. So it, yeah. was, it was helpful. <laughs> Well, that's great. We appreciate your work on that, Jack Jacobs, and uh, keep us updated, and and we look forward to uh, being able to tell the audience that these folks got a big, fat check. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Uh, You know, just these safety rights generally apply to to most jobs. You know, if you you are in an unsafe work condition and you see something, you don't feel as safe. You have the right to refuse that and, and, mm-hmm. and not be retaliated against. So just not just coal miners, it's other other places too. But just you know, just keep that in mind. And you know, for those guys who are working in, in hazardous jobs, that you know, you don't have to do <laughs> what management tells you just because they hold the purse strings. So right, right. Thank you so much, Jack. Yeah. I appreciate but it. Anyway, uh, you're welcome. Thanks, guys. All right. All right, folks. Yeah, that was Jack Jacobs talking to us about a case with a couple of Warrior Met miners uh, that had a safety incident before the strike. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned cool that there at the end. I mean, because I think right now, if you're local, you know how damn hot it has been lately. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have sisters and brothers out here working in this heat. And, you know, so my heart goes out to them. Anyone who is having to work in the heat or you know, of course, folks who are in some cases having to walk to work in the heat, but um, that—that's—that's that's a major issue to deal with is safety on the job, and that's something you know that ties back with our earlier interview with Mike Bailey and talking about indoor air quality. So whether it's the heat outdoors, uh, or COVID indoors, uh, and everything in between, you have a right to safe working conditions. And your right to refuse unsafe working conditions is probably one of the one of the most strongly enforced rights. Even though you know there are certain certainly it could be better. You know he's oh, absolutely. He, he's talking about this. This is about a year and a half later, still working to get back pay for these folks. But um, it it is going to be the the one where you're going to have the most likelihood of success. Um, so definitely keep that in mind uh the next story we have uh another kind of feel-good local story here blunt county schools has a summer program for students to help them catch up if they're behind in academics or get ahead if they like it's called dream catchers and um the uh, in an article talking about the success of the 2020 session uh which is the session um, in the, at the beginning of the pandemic, the executive director of the program, Mitchie Neal, explains what they do every day. Quote, students from grades K to 5 do sessions each day in reading, math, library, slash literacy, and enrichment. The enrichment sessions are a rotation of art, music, STEAM, and then something else. This year, the something else was a study of countries around the world and geography. Other years, the something else included movement, a fitness obstacle, 
musical course, Spanish, and drama. Uh, she also explains the success that they were able to have during the worst parts of the pandemic. And this is from the article again, and I'm going to quote it at length because I think it's worth it. It's really impressive. Academically, quote, academically, the composite gain in reading was five months and in math, three months. That is truly an accomplishment in only three weeks. These gains were also realized in the self-contained classes with kindergarten gaining an average 77 scale points and first grade an average 115 scale points, both very significant. This academic gain was possible due to relentless efforts of our teachers who were able to help some students gain over a year. Uh, students typically experience a summer slide, and this year our campers were at risk of experience, experiencing both spring and summer slide, but Dreamcatchers helped us negate that slide for 97 children. When we tallied our program end surveys, the Dreamcatchers 2020 composite program response rating was 4.99 out of a possible 5.0, the highest ever delivered in the middle of a pandemic. We are convinced the Dreamcatcher emphasis on social and emotional learning, along with the focus on academics and fun, is the right summer program model, uh, unquote. So we can see that this is a pretty successful program, and it's now in its seventh year, and one of the problems it had in the beginning was getting students to come to it, which, you know, makes sense. In the summer, who wants to go to school? Um, So the Central Alabama Labor Federation one year that decided to donate a bicycle as an, as a, attendance incentive. It went over really well, so the Labor Federation decided to just make that a budget item every year. As the Federation grew, bringing in more local unions, the budget grew and that line item grew. This year they donated eight bicycles to the program. We can see a picture of the central that the Central Alabama American Federation of Teachers posted. Uh, they are a member of the Central Alabama Labor Federation. They shared this picture uh, where you can see friend of the show Ross Robertson from IBEW 136 looking incredibly surprised (laughs) along with the following statement about the donations quote what a great partnership with hands on Birmingham Central Alabama Labor Council and AFT we delivered eight bicycles today to the Susan Moore Elementary School and Bluntsville Elementary School along with eight bike helmets to be used for attendance incentives for the Dreamcatcher and Explorer summer programs. Thanks to Mitchie Neal and the Blunt County Education Foundation for this wonderful opportunity to give back to our schools and the community. So there's a little feel-good story for Great you. Great stuff. Yeah. Yep. And uh, here's another kind of feel-good story, and we'll hit this, and, and we'll go ahead and wrap up. Um Kind of a feel-good story. So here's something that's going to totally shock you, Adam. Um, if you pay people more... They are more likely to continue working for you. Really? You don't yeah. say. <laughs> uh, are folks catching on? Shocking. Shocking, I know. AL.com reported uh, that under the new salary schedule for teachers in Alabama, which goes into effect in the 2022-2023 school year, all public education employees will get a 4% raise minimum, but experienced teachers will receive a raise between 5 and 21%. We saw a very alarming trend in the March applications, Scott said, we, uh, for retirement. 
We received 1,000 applications in March for a June retirement date. Normally, you get the most applications for June in April. After the new salary schedule was passed, not only did applications for June retirement drop significantly, but 89 people canceled their retirement. So ultimately, retirements were still high, but they were lower than expected and lower than the year before. Uh, we can see on this graph from the same article in AL.com um, that there were uh, about 3,300 reti- retirements where there were 3,500 retirements the year before, which is still significantly higher than the 10-year average, which hovered right. around 3,000. Uh, but still, you know, that's at least a trend we can say in the right direction. And, uh, you know, so this pay increase for, uh, <laughs> for experienced teachers, maybe there's something to learn from that. Absolutely. I mean, and I think... You know, there's there's two facets to this. Uh, the there's the base pay rate uh, increase of four percent, and then there's the adjustments of the salary schedule itself, especially adding additional steps for years of experience. And the the salary schedule for teachers has long been full of issues, uh, where you know sometimes it doesn't even make sense how you go from one step to another. And you'll see almost no pay raise, and yet other steps will be much more significant. So it was really uneven. Uh, and as addressed here with this this new schedule, uh, in the past it it had very little incentive to stay past you know say year twenty five. Uh, I believe year twenty seven was where it topped out. Um, you know, teachers on tier one can retire at twenty five years. Um, so anyway, this is this is progress because now there are more incentives for veteran teachers who are eligible to retire to stick it out, do, do another year or two in the classroom, and it's really addressing the, the mid-year teacher, uh, mid-career teachers, folks who've got, you know, 10 years or more in the system, but they're not ready to retire yet. Uh, And that's where you started to see the salaries really drag and fall behind other states. So it's been, uh, you know, a positive development to see this. But, you know, I also don't want to leave leave out the fact that if you're getting a 4% pay raise and inflation's at (laughs) 8.5%, you're getting a pay cut. So while, yes, I I think it's uh, a step in the right direction, and I think the legislature, you know, actually did something positive here in in working with AEA and and the superintendents and others to get the salary schedule redone, the pay raise itself is not enough, and it does not address the working conditions, which when you talk with educators is often – the, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth right. things that come out of their mouth about, you know, why they're discouraged or why mm-hmm. they're considering leaving early. Uh, pay is definitely a big factor, but it's by no means the only one. So yeah, this, I let's was take considering... this as a foundation. Mm-hmm. Let's take this as like mm-hmm. a foundation. Okay, we're making progress on pay. So now this this continue that progress while actually addressing some of the deeper issues in terms of working conditions and the supports available. Right. Yeah, I was considering becoming a teacher halfway through college, and I went back to my high school to talk to one of my favorite teachers, actually. I was considering uh, becoming like a high school calculus teacher or something. And um, he told me basically uh, that, that uh, don't do it. I wouldn't do it if uh, – and this was my favorite teacher, a very enthusiastic guy, um, you know, somebody that, that was really passionate about educating. And he was like uh, – 
you know, the stranglehold that the state has on us and our lesson plans and all the red tape and everything about the and it was it was not the pay as the primary thing. You know, he was like, in addition to all this, I get paid like crap. But the the main thing was I'm not respected. I am not able to practice my craft. You know, um, I'm not able to educate students in the way that that I think would be better for them um and you know and and i have to do all of this extra extra nonsense and and there are people over my shoulder all the time and it's just not enjoyable and if i had it to do over again i would be doing something different which is very which was very sad for me you know considering like this was like my favorite teacher um and and hearing him have such a uh not a great view of the profession yeah and not not too uncommon unfortunately so this hope that this is a step in the right direction but educators to to actually make it better rank and file educators have to come together and organize Mm -hmm. and really push everybody involved in the right direction we can't just wait on the legislature to do the right thing that has never been a a successful uh, solution in the state of alabama We're heading into overtime. You can find us online on YouTube and Facebook. You can continue watching the program after we get off of the radio. Just search the Valley Labor Report on YouTube or Facebook before we get off, though. Uh, Just a reminder that Labor Notes has a July Secrets of a Successful Organizer training series on Wednesdays beginning July 13th throughout the month of July. Alabama Arise has a town hall on Tuesday starting July 12th at 6 p.m. You can leave us a voicemail at 844-899-2. TVLR. You can buy our hat or give us money on our website, tvlr.fm. Uh, so, folks, go ahead and find us online. We're going to be talking about Tim Poole's opinion about unions, Alabama DA's not prosecuting abortions, and more. All power to the workers. You'll find overtime in your podcast feed on Thursday.